Mike Young, All Things Comedy. This is my first podcast on All Things Comedy Network. Couldn't be happier. Could not be more pleased. Came over here, checked out the studio, all the facilities, sitting in the studio right now. It, uh, I needed to be with a podcast family, with a comedy family. I had to get with a family. I was alone. I was solo. I was riding it out. I was inconsistent in my podcast game. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And then I saw Al Madrigal at the comedy store in a hallway. And I said, Al, what's going on? And he said, Mike, you got to come over to All Things Comedy. And I said, I'm coming. Where is it? And came over here, and I know Ari Shafir, I know Eleanor, I've known Al, uh, Bill Burr, I've known all these guys for years. Uh, Burr and I recently, you know, became cool, I, I didn't know him like I knew Al, but I've literally known Al for 15 years. I knew Eleanor when she was waitress at the comedy store. Uh, I've known Ari since he pulled his balls out on stage in the original room 13 years ago, and then every day after that he did that. Yep. So, you know what I mean? In here so, last Tuesday. Did he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Motherfucker loves his balls. It's yeah. unbelievable. He shouldn't. But no, he shouldn't. They looked old when he was young. He had old balls as a young man, and I think that was like the hook. That's what got him his Comedy Central deal. So anyway, I just wanted to be part of a community of like-minded people. And I got Aaron in the studio with me right now, engineer phenomenon, uh, who's been handling all things comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he said, get over here, get over the hill, get into the valley, see what's going on. And it took me a while because I've been gone all summer. I was in Michigan for three months. And now I'm here and I'm blown away. All right. I walked down the hall, full studio situation. Whatever we want to shoot here, whatever, imagine uh, the imagination is the only limit here at All Things Comedy. Yep. And beautiful facilities, great vibe. Well, I'm, I'm all about vibe. I work off feeling, all right? My last situation, I wasn't feeling great. You know what I mean? Things were, I, was, I was releasing things, and they were falling flat. Talked to Eleanor, talked to Al, talked to Ari, talked to everybody, talked to Kreischer, went and sat in Kreischer's man cave, did a two-hour podcast with Bert, who I've known forever, And this is what it is, man. And I'm so excited to be doing this with you guys, not only in the podcast world, but for people that don't know me, which is probably going to be most of the people since I've never been, I've never done anything with all things comedy, except I was on Kreischer's podcast and Eleanor's uh, and Ari when he first started. I don't even know if he was on all things when when he got his first start. He walked in my apartment, gave me 50 bucks. Started asking me questions. This was like two and a half, three years ago, literally. You're still still the first person to be paid from podcasting. Literally. I, I saved that money. I flipped <laughs> it. I got a solid 150. I'm working in the streets. But I might as well, what do you think, Aaron? Just give a brief who I am, where yeah. I've been. Mm-hmm. So I'm Mike Young. I've been doing comedy for 19 years, 20 years. Um, probably long, a little bit longer, but I really never thought of myself doing comedy until back in the day the girl I was dating said you don't take shit seriously and if you want to be a serious comedian you need to be up every day and that's pretty much when I became a comedian and it's been about 20 years I'm a comedy store guy that's where I started was the comedy store I'm from Detroit Michigan and for the first five six seven years I was grinding it out at the comedy store 
and fortunate as I was one day at the comedy store, Joe Rogan, who I didn't know, came to me and he said, dude, I really dig your stuff, man. You're, you you want to come on the road? I got, I got gigs. And I'm like, what are you kidding me? Do I want to go on the road? Yeah. Yeah. I want to go on the road. Whatever you say, bro, whatever that means, I'm in. Next thing I know, for the next year and a half, two years, I am traveling on the road, middling opening for Joe Rogan. And it is, in my mind, I made it. I'm done. Dream come true. Growing up as a kid in Detroit, all I thought about was doing stand-up comedy on the road. And then Joe Rogan, who was... <clears throat> excuse me, who, who was already blowing up from Fear Factor, who was just getting big in the UFC stuff, he took me out with him. And that was like the gift. And yeah. I remember I remember it was so bananas because I'd never been in front of... I could say this, the original room at the comedy store trains you for the road. So the hardest room in the world, original room which would, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen in that place. Ari's got his balls out. Joe Diaz is hopped up on nine joints talking Spanish. You know what I mean? There's two homeless people in the back selling paintings. And it just it conditions you and trains you like a fighter. So when I went on the road with Joe, it was like easy gigs because it was packed houses. First time I'd ever seen an actual crowd that wanted to kick it and actually watch comedy and not disrupt anything. And we, I ran it with Joe for, you know, a year and a half, two years. And in that time, I met Duncan Trussell. Duncan came out with us. So Duncan was opening. I was middling. Joe was headlining. There were times when it was me, Joe Diaz, and Joe Rogan. And it was fucking straight up rock and roll, bro. It was rock and roll. That sounds awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was. I looked at Rogan one day. I go, bro, do I owe you a hand job? Because <laughs> this is this is too good to be true. Every city we were doing, you know, Tempe. Uh, we were doing Phoenix, Dallas, Houston. You know, ev- just everywhere. You know what I mean? Just we just did the entire country. Vegas, House of Blues. Then we go to a UFC fight. It was. I was living the dream, and. I, me and Rogan, like I said, it was two years on the road, amazing run. Dude taught me so much, you know what I mean? But more than anything, gave me confidence in my own skills by thinking that I was a good, a good solid comedian. So that right there, just, you know, that got my confidence game up. So after that, went on the road with Rogan. Then one day, uh, you know, I'm, I, like, I like business as well. Like, I, I just, I like to create things and I I love content creating getting it out there because I feel like Hollywood is kind of upside down with the way they do shit and it's like why the fuck it's like I go out on the road with Rogan and we do shows and people laugh at the words we say now I gotta go sit in a room and convince these people that are in front of me that what we're doing is funny it's like this shit is proven how about just come on the road with us for a week and then buy the idea we already showed you that it works so you know as well as anybody this business is structured in an upside down kind of way. So I'm on the road with Rogan. We have that run. It's amazing. Uh, throughout all this time, uh, I'm meeting a lot of comedians. I'm making friends. I come up and my crew is Brett Ernst, Sebastian, Kreischer, Ari, Steve Renazizi, Bobby Lee. That's my, that's my fraternity. That's my camp. And so I hear that the tour with D.L. Hughley and Cedric the Entertainer, the Kings of Comedy tour, somebody just says to me, yo, they made si- that tour made $16 million on the road. So that blew my mind. Yeah. Right? 
16 oh. million wow. in a year. So I'm at Even the split four ways. That's that's still fun. Everyone's yeah. getting shoes. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. outfits for days. No one's <laughs> wives are pissed. That's just happy money. So I'm looking at one day I'm at the comedy store and I'm on the patio. And I swear to God, I look and I, there's Bobby Lee's in front of me, hopped up on Red Bull, twisting glue in his fingers. Sebastian's in the corner in a tight, weird shirt that doesn't fit him properly, bursting out and fucking, you know what I mean? Just eating bread too much. Brett Ernst is arguing about politics in another area. Ian Edwards is spitting some genius shit in a weird, quiet corner. And I have this epiphany. And I'm like, if that tour, and granted, we're not in the game that long. At this point, we're probably nine years, ten years into comedy ourselves. But I say, if those guys made $16 million, we've got at least $3 million in comedy right here. Like, we're not famous. None of us were well-known at all at the time. And so I literally, I went home, I wrote up a business plan before I even told them, I wrote up a business plan. I said, we're going to call this, I call it the young, I'm going to call this the young American comedy tour. My thought wasn't that we were young, but my thought was that we all represented different parts of America. Bobby's Asian, Sebastian Italian, Ian Black, me Jew. You know what I mean? Just a mix and amalgamation of different characters. And I just had this idea. So I took the I took the idea. I called Aaron at the improv who booked all the improvs. I said, I got this crazy idea. Can I come in and talk to you? I got the guys to I also got the guys first to sign off on it and agree to do it. But I didn't have any like real business savvy other than the idea. So I go to Aaron and I pitch her the idea for the Young American Comedy Tour. And within like 10 minutes, she's like writing all this stuff down on a piece of paper and she's on a computer. And she hands me a piece of paper, and it's 10 offers for 10 cities. Tempe, Dallas, Houston, uh, Seattle, uh, Detroit, Cleveland, wherever it is, there's 10 offers on a sheet of paper. She's like, here's your offers. See if these are good. I don't even know what that means. I don't know how much I'm going to pay the guys. I've never really, you know what I mean? Rogan had me on like a, a salary, basically. I, was just get, I knew what I was getting paid. I didn't have like a number idea in mind. So I left. I was like, this is great. We're going to get like the the total was like six grand from the venue and they'd give us a room. We had to pay for our own flights, blah, blah, blah. But to me, that was still good money. I, I, I broke it down and we started with those 10 cities and every city we did. And so the first crew was me, Sebastian and Brett, me, Sebastian, Brett and Tony Rock. And that was the crew. And we would go city to city. And every morning, you know, we would do radio promotion. And we started, like, really selling tickets and having, like, great shows. And so this went on. And then I was, I would take my fee. And I would just pay the guys. And they never argued about the money. So I'm thinking, Jesus, I must be paying them pretty good money. You know what I mean? And so we run that. And the Young American Comedy Tour, we end up doing it for like two years running. It's smooth. And Bobby Lee, we, I, we do a big show in Royal Oak Music Theater in Detroit. And Ren Azizi come. It's me, Bobby, and Ren Azizi and Tony Rock. And then me, Kreischer, Brett, and Sebastian. Are in, uh, we do a big, uh, like a theater in Florida somewhere. I meet Kreischer's family. Anyway, we run the Young American Comedy Tour for two to three years. And then I got a, I'll never forget, I get a phone call, like some straight mafia shit. And Sebastian and Brett call me and they go, yo, we just want to know, are we partners on this or are we work for hire? So I didn't even have any idea what 
I didn't know what to even say. You know what I mean? Because in my mind, I like literally, I I set us up a photo shoot. So we do a photo shoot. This is actually funny. We do a photo shoot at Leonardo DiCaprio's house. Oh, jeez. Okay? Leo's a friend of mine because I played in a basketball league with him for years. So we, I get the, I get all the comedians up to, I don't tell them it's his house. I got my boy who's a photographer who's good friends with him too. So we got house access. And the reason was he had this amazing view up in the hills, like 360 type shit. Wow. So I thought if we could shoot this with the fire, you know, all the dudes in the tour, we shoot the tour, you know, we shoot the photo shoot up there. We go up there, we start the photo shoot. Within 10 minutes, fucking Kreischer's naked in Leo's at Leo's fucking pool. He drops his shit. He's butt-ass naked in the middle of all the comedians. I'm panicking because I know Leo's got a cleaning lady in there somewhere who's going to walk outside and see a naked man with a horse ass. And it's just not going to be, it's just not going to be a good look. I'll get, up, you know, Leo might get upset if he hears there's a naked dude running around his pool. Whatever. Bottom line was we still did the we did the photo shoot, we got all the all the marketing tools together, and I was busting my ass to make this thing work. And I remember after I told Brett and Sebastian that they were works for hire and not partners, which by the way shame on me. I should have made everybody an equal partner, kind of. I, I mean I don't know. What do you think? It's it's a I tough mean, call at that moment. Yeah, yeah. It's like I'm doing all, all the work. work. Yeah, yeah. If you're I mean, it. all the work, bro. Yeah. I'm doing. I'm. I, I'm hiring graphic designers. I'm promoting. You know, I'm. Call, I'm calling favors of publicists. I'm out of pocket. All. I don't know what the hell. I just did it because I thought I had a vision. Anyway, after I told them we were there, were works for hire. Slowly but surely, those two started dropping off the tour. You know what I mean? Brett's like, I can't make it to Lauderdale. Sebastian's <laughs> like, I'm not gonna make this one in Chicago. Anyway, long story short. I get a sit down with the head of the with Robert Hartman who runs the improvs, right? And I, I I don't have a manager at the time. I'm just doing this shit on my own. And I'm at the table and Hartman's there and Judy's there and they're whole, like six people are at the table. And I'm not like getting the fact that they're trying to kind of come in and own a piece of the tour, which I would have probably just given them if the if they were clear on it. So Robert Hartman says to me, he's like, Do you own this tour outright? I was like, yeah, I pay $800 for a name every year, and I re-up it. I own it. He's like, okay, you know, what would you think about, uh, you know, being partners? And I said, yeah, come to me with, like, an offer. Like, just tell me what that is. Anyway, after a three-year run of all the improvs, they basically just stopped booking us. Oh. We just, I got fucking stonewalled. Wow. You know what I mean? And I know business is business, but, like, in my mind, it was like, yo, come in, take it, Take it over from me. You're making them money, too. I, I, I was making them money. In yeah. my mind, I was totally making them money. And, you know, we just got stopped. And then I started seeing... Oh, Steve Byrne was on the tour, too. It was a great tour. Steve, some, you know, we'd had interchangeable parts. Simone did shows. Ian Edwards. You know, I told you, Kreischer. It was a great mix. A lot of ATC guys. Oh, yeah. It was great. I feel like I started ATC by accident. <laughs> did I? Somebody call... Get magical in here. So, anyway, we run it for three years. After that, we periodically did like a theater. We did a theater in Michigan, a theater in Chicago, a theater in uh, um, Ohio, just a couple one-offs, and it kind of just faded out. And it was a great, amazing experience. I learned a ton about business. It, I learned a ton about comedy. I learned a ton about touring. And I also saw the toughest was like getting comedians just to wake up for radio. 
You know what I mean? It's like we're lucky enough that we're getting on radio. The least you could do is wake up. Oh, Butch Bradley was on because I remember he like one time we found him in the elevator. He was fighting somebody at five in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was Reuben Paul was on it. It was some fun. Fu- it was fun. It was some fun, fun shit. So <clears throat> anyway, so here I am, Rogan on the road, Young American Comedy Tour. Now I'm, you know, now now I'm back and I'm doing some headlining gigs on my own and I'm staying with comedy. But the whole time I'm doing comedy, I'm also a writer. And I've always been a writer. I've always, I wrote, you know, I took creative writing in college. When I moved out here, I was always on the side, like, you know, writing scripts and this and that. And so I wrote, uh, I had an office with the show Entourage at, uh, for HBO. And Doug Allen, who the creator of Entourage, and I'm just giving my story. Is that cool? I'm just, this Dude, is my intro thing. You yeah. know, ask, tell me when to shut up. <laughs> Keep going. But, uh, so, so comedy, 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 tour, tour, tour. I know Doug Allen. We play basketball together. Doug started as a stand-up and then later on <clears throat> obviously created Entourage. And I had a deal at ABC. I had so uh, I had a deal for my own sitcom. It's called a development deal. You have a deal. They give you money. They hold you. They don't do shit with you. I've never been on my own show, but I've had a few of these situations. So I get a deal. I'm in the I'm in the thing in the deal. Doug was potentially going to be one of the writers at the time, but then he sells Entourage. My deal falls apart at ABC. Not falls apart, but meaning I'm not going to be on a show. They're not going to make the Mike Young show. Doug gives me an office at Entourage. He says, come on in, just help, punch up jokes. You know what I mean? Hang with the fellas. I got uh, Kevin Connolly, who played E on the show, was a good friend of mine already because we were playing sports together, hockey and basketball. And so... That, so Doug was like, yo, we want to talk to this guy, Kevin Connolly. Can you get him in here to meet with me? I, get, I put Connolly at the table with Doug. And basically Connolly at the time, funny enough, was like, I'm done, bro. I quit acting. I'm just going to direct. So he was finished acting for real. He met Doug. Doug's like, you got the gig. And Connolly's like, I'm not auditioning for anything. And <clears throat> they said he didn't have to audition. But then last minute, HBO made him audition even though he pretty much had it locked. So anyway, I got an office for the first two seasons. I'm punching up jokes, um, you know, helping out with storylines. I'm in the writer's room every day. It's me, Chris Henshey, Doug Allen, Rob Weiss, uh, Brian Byrne, uh, yeah, Brian Burns, um, Lisa Alden. Just an amazing, awesome group of people. Energy was incredible. It was my first experience in a writer's room taught me a a ton about structure so now I'm kind of getting more into the writing world still doing stand-up disappearing every weekend doing stand-up every week I'm in the I'm in the writer's room at Entourage amazing run Uh, that runs its course for two seasons for me and then um, there was a moment where I thought I would be staffed but I ended up I ended up doing another development deal situation that didn't go anywhere. But anyway, I was done at Entourage after two seasons. Still be, you know, still remain to this day great friends with everybody. It was an amazing run. The parties, you can imagine, were ridiculous. You know what I mean? I was there for everything in the beginning. Wow. Like, ask me anything, I'll tell. I was there for the first time. For the first time, the whole cast got to hang together and meet each other, like Dylan and Jerry and Kevin and Piven. And we all went to Vegas. 
Oh, and Doug brought me, and it was on a private plane. It wow, freaking bananas, bro. <laughs> so anyway, then it goes, in, you know, that so that I have a great experience at Entourage, and the whole time I'm really, I'm really learning TV structure, half hour structure, half hour. So I start writing my own pieces, and after that, I had I sold I sold a show of my own um, called The Light. That was it's similar. It's it's not a '70s period piece or '80s period piece like I'm dying up here, but it's it's the same exact world, mm-hmm. but it was modern day. So I sold that actually to HBO. They bought the show. Um, Toby McGuire was an executive producer on it. They didn't make the show, but it was another just another great writing experience. So simultaneously, I'm doing stand up and I'm writing, and people are always like, "What do you like better? What's the?" To me, it's all the same shit. It really is. It's like different form of expression. Al's a writer. Al's an actor. Al's a stand-up. You know what I mean? You look at the old school dudes. You look at Woody Allen, stand-up, writer, director. Barry Levinson, stand-up, writer, director. You know, so Louis C.K. was making short films. It's not like a weird thing to be doing these three things. So cut to... Doug Allen and I, we, we don't talk for a while after I wasn't on Entourage. That's, that's another story for another podcast. We have this like whole situation, but it's all good. One day I get a phone call from Doug, and he's like, listen, these guys from New York with money, they want to hire me to write a, a movie for them, but I don't have time. Would you go meet with these guys? So long story short, I go to a meeting. I go to Factors Deli. Anytime two Jews meet at a deli, something positive is going to come out of it. So we sit at the deli, and these guys, David Golden and Eric Bamberger, who financed what's what I'm going to tell you about, we're sitting there, and they're telling me stories. And they're just they're like, we want to make a movie, but we're not exactly sure what it's going to be. And Doug had like, you know, we thought Doug, you know, he referred us to you, and here's our sensibilities. And they start telling me how their wives. You know, they can't tell their wives anything, but if they're in a strip club, they could tell strippers their whole life story. So basically, they did not really have an idea. So I said, give me two weeks. Give me a whatever, a week, two weeks. I'm going to come to you with an idea. I came back to them with my idea for what became My Man is a Loser, which is a comedy uh, starring Michael Rappaport, John Stamos, Tika Sumter, um, uh, who else? Sean Young was in the movie, Nick Cordero. Uh, it was just, oh no, Nick was in my next one, sorry. Um, but it, it ended up being My Man is a Loser, and I made it, and Lionsgate ended up buying it and putting the movie out. So I write the movie. They love the movie. They, they love the script, the guys that hired me for it. They call me. They're like, who's going to direct the movie? They're like, We're actively looking for a director. So in my mind, I'm like, well, shit. Woody Allen, he didn't know how to direct in the very beginning. I'm going to tell them that I can direct this movie. I've never directed anything at the time. I'd never directed. I thought those cameras could zoom in. I didn't know you needed to change a lens. I didn't know anything, really, other than story, rhythm, timing, beats. That's what I knew. So I called Doug, and I said, Doug, please vouch for me that I could direct this movie. Doug calls my guys, says, yo, Mike can direct this 100%. Let him direct. So next thing I know, I am about to direct a $5 million movie. And it was game on, and it did, and the and it just was like a dream come true. I mean, they basically called me. They said, "Okay, we've got the money in escrow. Let's hire the casting director, and 
We hired a casting director out of New York, but I already had a cast in my mind. Like I, like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Michael Rappaport's. Since then, we've already we've done a ton of stuff together. I ghost wrote his new book that's coming out. Um, we've done a, you know, he did my last movie, a stand-up guy. Always a fan of his, and he and I actually played basketball together, but he didn't remember me. No one's remembering me from basketball. I got, I can play. I was never allowed on the uh, the comedy store team, but that was that's they're, they're still kicking themselves for that. Anyway, we start casting the movie. I go. I had. I send Rappaport's manager the script. He reads it. He says, we, we, we love it. What do you want Michael to do? Make him an offer. I said, can I please just have lunch with him first? Talk to him. I have lunch with Rappaport. He had read the script, liked it. He basically said yes at lunch. Done. Locked Rappaport. We're looking for like the lead. So, that, so My Man is a Loser is about a single dude who helps his married guys get their swagger back. It's got a little bit of hitch in it. But more married, you know, there's married people involved, and it's it's a little bit, little bit of hitch. So, I'm 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 casting. I'm meeting actors. I meet Tony Hale uh, from Veep. Yeah, you know what I mean. So this is before Veep was on. It was right about he was up for Veep. It was going. It was about to go. So I meet Tony Hale at Cantor's Deli. That's where I had all my meetings. Were Cantor's. Everything's a deli. You know what I mean? No bread. I just wrapped the sh- corned beef and cheese. So I meet Tony Hallett, and he wants to play. Oh, Brian Callen. I'm sorry. Fuck. Brian Callen is in the movie. So I, he want, Tony Hale wants to play Brian Callen's role, and he's sitting across from me, and he's like, this role is me. Da, 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 da. And meanwhile, I'm in. Like In my mind, I'm like, I love Tony Hale. This guy's incredibly talented. Let's do it. I call my producers. They make a few phone calls. They're more in business brain than creative brain. So in my mind, I'm like, Tony Hale is great. In their mind, they're like, no one knew who he was at the time. They got to get their investors their money back, blah, blah, all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. So they say they say no. And I'm on the road the next week, and I'm in Miami, and I'm opening for Brian Callen. And I already in my mind, I already know that I'm about to direct a movie. So, but I'm just doing a weekend of comedy with Callen. We're in Miami. Callen is one of the funniest motherfuckers off screen, off stage. He's great on stage. He is great off stage. And he's just killing me in like the lobby. And I fucking have this th- moment where I'm like, you know what, Brian? I can r- I can write to your voice. I said, Brian, I'm directing a movie. The money's already there. I think I have a role for you. He's like, come on, bro. Everybody says they're doing a movie. What are you talking about? So I give him the script in the coffee shop in Miami in uh, at the Miami Improv, whatever that little coconut grove. We're having, yeah, and I give him the script. That night he reads it. In the morning he goes, bro, I fucking love it. I'll audition for you. I'll put myself on tape. I'm like, I'm the director. You don't have to put yourself on tape. I'm telling you. I'll write the character with your, you know, little minutia that you do, your little fun innuendos and, you know, your little quirks, and I'll I'll make this for you. He was in. So I got Rappaport signed on. I got I got Callan signed on. Literally go through the man. All of a sudden, like I'm there, I'm in the I'm talking to managers as a director, and I'm like helping make their deals. I don't know, I don't know how though. I'm like I forest gumped my way into this whole thing. So Anyway, now I got my two two out of my three leads. So the next the next lead is the is the single dude. So we're going we go out to James Marsden. 
to play the single guy. And he's he's perfect for it. I, I think he's perfect for it. But my guys, they keep calling me and they keep going, dude, our wives are in love with John Stamos. He's a huge name. But I'm thinking like Stamos is a very famous person. He hadn't done a lot of movies at the time and he was looking for a movie. So I basically just, I, I, I say to my guys through, I know Bob Saget very well. And Bob and I have now been on the road. I've done the road with Saget for a long time now. And so I say to Saget, will you get Stamos the script? Same story. Stamos reads it. I get a phone call. The single guy was based on me, like my own voice. Stamos calls, his manager calls me, says, will you meet him at a restaurant for lunch? I go, I meet Stamos for lunch. He walks in, greatest hair in the country, sunglasses, fucking uncomfortably good-looking olive skin. You know what I mean? Weirdly thin. He, like, hasn't eaten bread in 20 years. But shirt buttoned to the middle of his, you know, like, 1980s <laughs> shit. Like, just coming off of, I'm like, coming in the restaurant like a rock star. So well, Stamos was in the Beach Boys. Is in the Beach Boys, by the way. <laughs> still touring. Oh, great. Literally, I've seen him with the Beach Boys. Awesome. So Stamos comes in. We have lunch. We start talking. He tells me this character is him. He starts telling me single stories about himself. His philosophy on relationships is so fucking bananas that I just say, this is the guy. Like, I was single and have done wild shit. He took it to a whole nother level. Like, you can imagine. His philosophy... Yeah. One one day he says to me, he goes, listen, bro, if you're going to get in a relationship, you got to get the threesome out of the way. All right. So that's where the <laughs> fuck his brain is at. He's not even in on planet Earth. So I got my three leads locked. Stamos, Rappaport, Cowan, three male leads. And now we are shooting. We're going to shoot in New York. And that's where I'm going to do the rest of my casting. Get to New York. I got an office. I'm directing. You know what I mean? Oh, by the way, I started reading books on directing. <laughs> I got directing for actors. I bought like Sidney Lumet's book on making movies. I got. I read like biography on Woody Allen. I listened to every interview. I watched his documentary. I'm just studying. At, I'm fucking drawing stick figures in a in, in a box. I'm like really, really preparing to direct. And what you learn is. There is no better school than just being on the fucking set because it, I don't give a shit how many books you read, they don't help. Being on set, being in the grind, being in the mix, seeing what that energy is, that's the school. So we get to New York, I cast the rest of my actors, Tika Sumter, Kathy Cyril, Heidi Armbruster, um, a couple other amazing like comedy pieces. Um, that were the guys that were great. Who who's the who's the comedy actor that's married to Samantha B? Oh shit. What is his What's name? His name. He's a great actor. He yeah, wanted yeah. to be in the movie. He's on the Daily Show too. Daily Show. Oh, oh, wow. Anyway, sorry, bro, if, if you're listening. <laughs> but he was awesome. I talked to him. I wanted to get him in the movie too. And we just we couldn't make it work. So what you learn is you can't put every you know you never know how things are going to work out. Um, but I, I was super thrilled with my cast. I had a super talented cast. And the whole process made me thoroughly respect... How are we doing on time? We're fine. Yeah, yeah. 30. We're at 30. It made me respect the actor. Like, I, I'll be real with you. Real actors, great actors, people who truly can do this... They are a fucking gift to us. They tell your story. They live in that character. They are, and and when they're professional, 
like I had going on with my guys, you just you got to have respect for the game because Jason I, Jones. Sorry, thank you, Jason yeah. Jones. Great. Talk to Jason Jones back before he did his show. He had a show coming out. So I wanted to get him in the movie. Somehow we couldn't make it work. I forgot what it was. But uh, I think Stamos actually ended up playing the part of Mike, which is what Jason Jones wanted to play. And he's great. And I hopefully down the road we'll get to do something. But anyway, I'm off and running in New York City, and I'm directing my first movie. And it is one hell of an experience because the second you get there – I go into the office, and here comes an art director, and they want to know what color painting should be on the wall in the scene in the third day. And here comes a costume designer, and they want to know if Stamos should have those shoes and if Rappaport should have that shirt. And you are just on fire from the day you get there till the day it's over, till the day you rap. You look fucked up. I lost 30 pounds. I looked homeless. I felt homeless. I don't remember if I even ate the whole time I was directing. It is like an awesome it's like an awesome hurricane. You don't know if it's a bad time to say hurricane, but it is a whirlwind situation. You are making on the spot, in the moment decisions. So all you could, all I could do was be as prepared as I possibly could. And to me, what that meant was make sure the script, top to bottom, is fucking airtight. Because even when you love your script, it is going to be flexible. It's going to change. Things are going to happen. Like when I saw how funny Rappaport could be and how funny and how talented he was, I wrote 10 new scenes for him, like just throughout the movie, just because I knew that was value. You know, when I saw Callan doing his thing again, I we fucking ad-libbed and I let him run wild at times. So my man is a loser. We shoot the movie. Uh, it's it's a $5 million budget. We absolutely overspent. We did not need to spend that much money. But my guys, great dudes, but they were like those dudes who they wanted to be in down. They wanted to be down with Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So when Stamos is like, I need a trailer, they got the guy a fucking trailer on an wow. independent movie. Yeah, You don't get a trailer on an indie. No. You know what I mean? You don't get a trailer. He got a trailer. Rappaport got a trailer. Everyone's in a fucking trailer like we're shooting Transformers. Meanwhile, it's a fucking indie film. Anyway, greatest experience of my career up to that point. Shoot the movie. We put it in the can. Post-production. You know, I didn't speak the language. I didn't speak. That was, you know, I had to learn that as I went along. So the post the, the post language, was, you know, talking with your editor, it's very frustrating if you're not fluid in the language. Yeah. And I could see why a lot of directors edit themselves and want control. It's just easier to cut out a middle person, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, to get your to articulate your point. So there were a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs, frustrating moments. But in the end, it was bought by Lionsgate, and it was a kind of an amazing moment. You know, my first movie, wrote and directed, we sold it to Lionsgate, and it was a really great moment. And Lionsgate put the movie out, and it went to. It was, you know, theater VOD same day situation. And it's been three years since that movie came out or two and a half years. And it's done over like, you know, a million downloads in that iTunes world, whatever it is. And it's done really well. It did not do well at all in the theater. Uh, Critically, I got buried. (laughs) Like fucking buried. Like so... You know, I'm from Detroit, so, like, if you come at me with some real, like, shit that sounds personal, 
you might get your house egged. You know what I mean? Like, I know who you are, Justin Chang at Variety Magazine. <laughs> I know who you are, bro. I'm calling you out. There was no need to fucking say the things you said. But but the real knock that I was getting from these critics was like, we've seen this formula before. We've seen this. John Stamos is not a you know lead of them. Go fuck yourself. Try to make a fucking movie. Let's see where you're at, bro. You know what I mean? If you don't have a heart attack... Congratulations. All right. Making a movie is one of the hardest things in the world. And if you're a critic and you're just being a critic for being a critic's sake, you're just a bitch. So that's that's to that. Anyway, long story short, I was happy with the movie. I always say like I was 79, 84% happy. There were these moments that I wish I could like reshoot or songs I wish I could have got in. And But you are on a schedule. George Lucas wasn't happy with Star Wars. Come on. That's all you need to know. <laughs> All right, that's all you need to know. Like, I get it. I totally get it because it's your fucking baby. And the way movies go, what I learned is you want to be surrounding yourself with people that can care as much as you care because there's like a pyramid of care. So director, I'm going to care the most because I'm just caring the most about everything. And then it goes down from there, and you just want as much love and care for the project. And it's not always going to happen because people have lives. The movie is not their life. But if you could just have that simple philosophy of just make every, you know, just make it as great as you can and then be done with it because that's all you can do. So we made the movie, put it in the can, Lionsgate bought it, put it out, it's done. The premiere. We have the premiere, you know, my guys in New York, they're like, you know, big money guys. New York, they want to be premiere shit. So we have a premiere in New York. It's a big blowout, fun premiere. I put Ronnie the limo driver from Howard Stern in my movie because he's he's an awesome dude, and he's really like a wild dude. Ronnie's like a wild dude. And Stamos was friends with him, and I put Ronnie in the movie. So because I put Ronnie in the movie, Stern put me on the wrap-up show. Oh, wow. So it was a really awesome experience, top to bottom, I learned so much that was just coming at me, I can't even explain. So we have the premiere. At the premiere, unbeknownst to me, there's two finance guys from the film world that are at the premiere. One of them I know from from uh, Los Angeles. I just I, I didn't know he was at my premiere. We do the premiere after the movie. His name's Danny A. And his his business partner, Ron Rofay, they come up to me. They go, bro, we love your movie. We want to make a comedy with you. Next thing I know, like right away, I'm getting a phone call. By the way, this is without an agent and manager at the time. So to my people out there, we live in a new world now. You know what I mean? It is great to have an agent and manager that hustle for you and bust ass. But nobody is going to bust ass like you're going to bust ass for yourself. And no one's going to be making shit happen like you and your eight friends that you probably already know that, you know what I mean? You can make shit happen on your own. That's what I've been learning. And it's a beautiful thing. So they come up to me after the premiere. We want to make a movie. Uh, I talked to them on the phone three days later. The produ- the guy, the finance guy, Danny, he has an idea for a movie in his mind. And he, he's a little funny yeah, Brooklyn kid. And he's like, yo, I got this movie. Well, uh, Brooklyn dude, basketball, fish out of water, blah, blah. He had like a half an idea. But I, for years, have had this idea in my head that because going on the road, comedians, as you've probably heard many times, we get shit on. 
Yeah. Many times. Mm-hmm. You will get to a club somewhere in America and they don't have your money. You will get dogged out. They want something will happen. So I always had this thought in my mind because I've had yeah, I've done I've, like I said, I grew up with some shady people. I've had friends in jail. I got one coming out now. You know what I mean? I know I've had criminal thoughts. I've done things, but I'm I'm no Joey Diaz, but I've done things. Anyway, that being said, I always had this thought like if I ever had to go into the witness protection program, would I just not be funny anymore? So I had this idea for a movie. Guy goes into the program, starts telling jokes on a dare on an open mic night, and he becomes accidentally famous while the mob is after him. Thus is born my idea for a stand-up guy. I pitch it to the to the money guys, and I shut their idea down. I said, please believe me, this is a good idea. They bought it. They bought the idea, hired me to write it, wrote a stand-up guy, directed a stand-up guy, and that was my second movie. And I don't know. I don't want to bore. You, I don't know if I'm boring you with like how that all went down. But my guy that financed the movie was also an actor. He's also in my movie, Danny A, playing the comedian. And he is one of the funniest, just straight street Brooklyn dudes. He was never a stand-up, and he wouldn't really, he wouldn't even do stand-up when I tried to bring his ass to a club. So apparently, he wasn't that hardcore of an actor. I brought him to the cellar in New York. He just. He was panicking. He was freaking out. He wanted to just act the part. You know what I mean? <laughs> he didn't go De Niro on the on the piece. But anyway, we shoot this movie, and this is a real independent film. This film, the budget is $1 million, and we got a $1 million to make the movie. I get Rappaport in it. I get Ethan Suplee. I get Jay Ferguson, uh, Nick Cordero from Bronx Tale on Broadway. Um, just a really cool oh morana tias uh, who was on that show tyrant gorgeous actress and boom i get my next movie done and it happens kind of quickly and we shoot a stand-up guy and they sell it to a company called the orchard who's a distribution company and then netflix buys it and so now like as we speak you can see a stand-up guy on netflix And like I said, like any other project, and I'm sure everybody who's done anything creative in their life, you're, you know, you're happy, but you're not happy, but you're happy, but you're not happy. You know what I mean? So people, some people really dig the movie. Um, You know, I had a lot of battles with this one because my lead actor was also of the finance. And so those are ego battles that you do not want to get into. But I got into them. He and I, there was probably a month or two we didn't talk. You know what I mean? But it's always, in my mind, I'm always trying to fight for the best product, period. Fuck the ego. It's garbage. You just have to try to make good shit and share it. So we made a stand-up guy. Netflix bought it. It's running on Netflix now for like the next two years, I believe. And that was my last movie. And it's been a really interesting, cool you know, career so far as a stand-up writer, director. And now I'm back. I'm on the road doing shows with Bob Saget. <laughs> you know, we just got back from Vegas. And I've been hired to fortunately, you know, write, you know, three or four more movies since then. And so my next movie is about the garment district in the 1970s when the mafia ran the garment industry. And I got a phone call. And this goes to show you what I'm talking about, like, 
use your relationships. You know what I mean? Like if you have a skill set, don't be afraid to make a phone call. Use your relationships. If someone's not out there busting ass hiring. And I got to believe this applies to any fucking job in the world. You know what I mean? To anything. So I get a phone call uh, on the, on the garment district. The movie's called the district. And we, uh, a friend of mine is a, is the president of TV distribution at Sony. A buddy of mine, John Weiser, he calls me, says, yo, my boy, I grew up with this dude. His father ran the garment district for the Gambino family in the 70s. Wow. You got to talk to this guy. Long story short, I talked to him, get his story down, and here I am writing the movie. And now the movie's written, and it's going to be probably a bigger movie, and they want a bigger name director. So we're talking to Nick Cassavetes right now. Ooh. And... My phone just buzzed, which could be a no from Cassavetes. No, it's not. It's actually it's Rappaport. Um, but Cassavetes is reading the script right now. He actually he read the first draft. He called me. He said, "Do me a favor for me to do this. You need to." His term was, "You need to take a bigger bite of the apple," meaning just go deeper on your characters. Just go deeper, deeper, deeper. So I did the rewrite. I sent it to him last week, waiting to hear. Knock on wood, Nick Cassavetes directs my movie, and that would be another dream come true because I know Nick is crazy talented, and, you know, I'd just be lucky to be in that company. And so that's where I'm at, man. I got a couple, you know, I got a, that's, there's one other project I could talk about that is, it's just interesting for anyone listening. Um, there's a story, actually, I don't even know if I should talk about it, but there, what do you think? Should, I don't know. If you're, I think if I've done you're hesitant, don't. Yeah. yeah. It's another guy. He's in prison right now, but I'll, I'll talk about it on my next podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's a guy in prison who's getting out soon. He has a life story. They just shot his movie wow. starring Matthew McConaughey. Oh, I did not nice. write that movie. Yeah, yeah. But he, he, I've, I've, he's from Detroit, the guy who's in jail. He's from my neighborhood, from my area in Detroit. He's been locked up. I, I could say it. Fuck it. His name's, they call him White Boy Rick. Okay, if you look up White Boy Rick, you'll see the story of White Boy Rick. But I'm up, I'm I'm in the running right now to potentially write his book when he gets out, and so that's just something that I would love to do because it's a, it's an amazing story, and you know it's public knowledge. But basically, when he was 15 years old, the feds came to this kid and they fucking used him as an informant. Oh wow! So while he was an informant, he also became a dope dealer. And he started to rise up in the ranks as a drug dealer. So he was he was working on both sides, gave the feds all the all the info they needed, basically. And the feds fucking used him. And he was in Detroit. And he was also involved with, like, the mayor of Detroit and the chief of police. And he was in this world where the corruption in Detroit was so fucking high level that when he got caught with drugs as a drug dealer... They fucking gave him life in prison wow. on a nonviolent drug offense. And it was back in the day when there was that law that you could go for a certain amount of cocaine, you could go for life. Yeah. They fucking gave him life, and he did not deserve it. And he's been in 27 years right now. Wow. And he just got paroled out of Michigan, but he may have to serve another year. But knock on wood, Rick is coming out, and it's hopefully the next part of his life is just a beautiful fucking life because he deserves it. And... The fact that they used this kid and locked him up, it's just a crazy-ass story. Hopefully, I will be working on the book. I don't know yet, but that's just I'm, just... I'm just always trying to find a passionate project that I love. 
And, you know, as far as stand-up goes, I still have fire and love for stand-up. So I will be, I'm, I'm touring with Saget right now, and it's just me and Bob, and I'm doing a half hour. But my next move in stand-up is I'm going to do my special. I've never done a special, and, you know, I want to shoot my stand-up special. And not sure where I'm going to shoot it. Probably Detroit, my hometown. But I just want to keep creating, making good shit, making good content, sharing it, and just, you know, just not getting stonewalled, you know? Mm -hmm. And... That's why I could not be happier, man, to be like in the world and in the family of all things comedy. Because not only are these my peers that I've known for 20 years and, you know, guys who, you know, I've been around with, but it's also everybody you have in your camp. I just have respect. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't have any. There's no lames coming through here. Mm -mm. And that's why I feel honored and I have total gratitude and i'm totally grateful that fucking al was like yo mike we got to get you in here man we got to get you over here and ari i'll see your ball soon kreischer i'll see you without a shirt off uh al i'll see you in the hallway just looking serious but not being serious (laughs) and um you know aaron thank you for letting me come in for my first intro podcast yeah check out the archives too they're all going to be up on all things comedy and SoundCloud oh, and iTunes. Absolutely. There's 36 episodes mm-hmm. um, of my past podcast, and it's it's going to be up now. So check out the archives. Get caught up on my world. My name is Mike Young. On Instagram, it's the real Mike Young. On Twitter, I'm real Mike Young. Obviously, real Mike Young. Obviously, I couldn't get my own fucking name. Somehow, I just couldn't be Mike Young. So, you know. Thanks for having me, bro. I look forward to making some great stuff with you guys. You know, you're going to hear a lot from me, Aaron. I'm mm-hmm. going to bother you a little, not bother you, but okay. I'm, I, ideas mm-hmm. are always flowing with me, through me, and I like to make stuff. Sure. So here they have an amazing studio. I can't wait to get in there and shoot it something. And we're probably going to shoot some single mic episodes. And Al saw single mic, and that's my next TV piece that we're going out with. And I, I, already, I just saw that room and it just I'm already ready to fucking move a bed in there, turn it into an apartment <laughs> and start shooting single mic. So, again, thanks for having me. My name is Mike Young. I'll be on All Things Comedy. I'll be doing podcasts every week, sometimes with a guest, sometimes not. Um, my podcast before was called Stories That Need to Be Told with Mike Young. Is that we are we keeping that? Yeah, yeah. Stories That Need to Be Told. Stories That Need to Be Told with Mike Young. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Could not be happier. Thank you, bro. Welcome.